The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you longing for a place where hope, ideas, and new ways of thinking can arise? For nearly 50 years, Omega Institute's campus in Rhinebeck, New York, has been a gathering place where world-class teachers provide innovative educational experiences that cultivate extraordinary potential in us all. Join us either on campus or online. To learn more, visit eomega.org. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Support for this show comes from Sivananda Ashram Yoga Retreat Bahamas where yoga is more than a class, it's a way of life. With a mission to promote peace in the world, we invite you to immerse in a yogic lifestyle. Get started at sivanandabahamas.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. My guest today, Jim Rendon, is a freelance journalist who covers, among other topics, business, science, and design. Jim's work has appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times, both the magazine and the newspaper, Mother Jones, Marie Claire, Fortune, Men's Journal, Rolling Stone, and Outside. His new book, Upside, The New Science of Post-Traumatic Growth, was reviewed in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Jim Rendon, welcome to Essential Conversations. Hi, Rami. Thanks for having me. So what is post-traumatic growth? Sure. Post-traumatic growth, it's an idea that these two psychologists at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte kind of stumbled upon in the 1980s. Uh, you know, at the time, uh, PTSD had just recently been recognized by the, uh, the DSM, sort of the Bible of psychology. Certainly a lot of veterans from Vietnam were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, and this was a new way of, I think, finally recognizing some of the, the pain that trauma causes. And, you know, these two guys got interested in actually looking at wisdom. They were sort of curious about what older people had to say about life and how to live life and the they learned and they began by talking to uh, widows. And the first thing they noticed is these women that they were talking to, you know, were sad and they missed their husbands and they went through, I think, a period of mourning and, and some pain and suffering over the loss of their husbands. But that wasn't all that they talked about. They also started talking about all these changes they went through, that they were suddenly, um, you know, a little bit more independent. They realized they were stronger than they thought they were before because they had sort of been through this ordeal and survived. They found that they were closer to friends. They were closer to some of their family members. They had a whole list of positive changes that had come from from this traumatic experience. And that kind of set these two researchers on this path of looking at this question of what really does result from traumatic experience. And post-traumatic growth is not a way of denying the suffering of trauma. You know, everybody who goes through something traumatic uh, suffers. It's a terrible experience. And, you know, that suffering goes anywhere from mild upset or discomfort to really extreme PTSD. And, you know, there's a large spectrum of, of really horrible things that result from trauma. But that's not the end of it trauma causes people to change. Part of that change is the suffering and the negative things that you go through, but that suffering is kind of a catalyst that pushes people to re-examine their lives, to think about what's important, to really change in a lot of fundamental ways, and, and a lot of that change is beneficial and, and really positive. 
So let, let's just stick with widows for a moment, just because my dad died just a few months ago, and I'm yeah. watching my mother go through this, and it really matches exactly what you're saying. She is doing a lot more than I thought she was going to do. She's very independent now. I'm wondering if my dad kept my mom from realizing her potential and that now that he's gone, she is freer to discover who she really is. So is it growth through trauma or is it liberation through death? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I mean, it may be some of both. I, I don't really know, you know anything about your parents' relationship. I mean, I think for most of us, we have a narrative about who we are and what we're capable of and what we're not capable of. And, you know, I think a lot of things contribute to that narrative, whether it's our careers, our relationships, the world that we've constructed around ourselves, you know, and trauma, whether it's loss of a loved one or, or some physical injury or psychological injury changes that. It shakes things up and it makes people question that whole narrative of who they are and, and what they can be and what they want to be and how they want to spend the rest of the time they have left in the world. You know, I think for, for many people, trauma is a very existential experience. It kind of puts death in your face and it causes people to, you know, reconsider what they want to do with the time they have left and they make very different choices than they might have otherwise. So, not knowing about your own family situation, you know, I don't know if it's a limitation based on that relationship yeah. or, or just the limitations that we all have based on the lives that we construct that are safe and easy and sort of driven by convenience and all well, of that kind of sure. baggage that comes along with everybody's lives. So I think, I, it, you know, it's in a way maybe not surprising to hear what she's going through because I think that's what many trauma survivors go through. And maybe this isn't true, but most of the widows you were talking to were probably of that generation, people in their 80s, maybe. And I'm just wondering the way they were socialized with their husbands, if suddenly that having the man no longer available to them the way he was before is just sort of a liberating thing uh, rather than, than a, a matter of, of going through some trauma. Yeah, I think that was part of it. It's certainly one thing they mentioned in their research was, you know, that a lot of these women learned how to drive and they had never driven a car before. They were used to their husbands, you know, driving them around town. And so now they had actually, you know, much more freedom just to get around and do the things they wanted to do without having to rely on somebody else to help them get from place yeah. to place. It would just be interesting yeah. to do the research again in 20, 30 years with a different generation and see what the impact is. Yeah. Tell us something about Sergeant Jeffrey Beltran. Sergeant Beltran, I wrote about for the New York Times Magazine, um, and that was sort of the beginning of my interest in this topic. He is a fellow who went, who had really severe injuries resulting from sort of a, I guess, an explosion that he was in, in, in the war in Iraq. And, you know, for him, I think his injuries were debilitating and he, he had a lot of physical problems that resulted from them. And he was lucky enough to kind of get involved with the U.S. Army program. It's actually changed quite a bit since then. But at the time, part of the focus of the program called Comprehensive Soldier Fitness was to try to help soldiers both with the idea of resilience that, you know, if you are in a traumatic event, you maybe can sort of train yourself a little bit to not be as traumatically impacted by that. But also looking at this idea of post-traumatic growth and talking with soldiers about various kinds of outcomes of trauma, not just PTSD, but that there are positive things that could come from this as well. And, you know, Beltran, I think, really benefited a lot from his involvement with that program. He, you know, started going back to school. He um, got closer with his family. He, he really, I think, found a path towards trying to create a life that was more meaningful for himself, in part because he was sort of exposed to these ideas through that army program. So do you think that for someone who hasn't had a, a major trauma yet, would exposure to these ideas trigger the same kind of growth? 
It can. I mean, there's been a lot of research. So, you know, um, Rich Tedeschi and Lawrence Calhoun kind of first stumbled in this, in this idea in the 80s, and they started publishing on it in the early and, and well, it's really like the mid-90s. And since then, uh, there's really been just a, a continual growth of um, psychologists looking into this. And you see research taking place all over the world. I mean, you see in like the Iranian Journal of Psychology, there is an article. There are people looking at, you know, Israeli POWs and Palestinians in Israeli prisons. You have uh, research going on in China in, you know, really uh, all over the place. I think the more people dig into it, the more they're discovering really a broad range of ways that people find a path towards growth. And certainly one of them is just kind of knowing about it. There have been studies done that look at this question of sort of having a model for growth. So, do, you know, if you see, if you read a story of somebody who has this kind of life trajectory that involves trauma and some positive change coming from it, or if you know somebody like that, or even just having, some psychologists have said, just having an image of something, a piece of art, or, you know, whatever it may be that kind of gets across this idea that traumatic experience can be a kind of rebirth and have the opportunities that that rebirth has with it, that you can become somebody new or different or a better version of yourself, that just knowing about that really does have a big impact and that, you know, shows kind of higher levels of growth among trauma survivors that say, for example, know somebody who has exhibited post-traumatic growth in the past. So a certain amount of knowledge uh, certainly helps. And I've, I mean, in my book, I interviewed about, I think there are 19 trauma survivors in the book, and I interviewed quite a few more than that. And, you know, I can't tell you the number of people that I got in touch with and started talking to, and they're like, oh, that's what happened to me. I didn't know there was a word for this. I thought I was crazy. I thought there was something wrong with me because I went through something really terrible. And yes, I suffered. But at the end of the day, I feel like I'm a much better person. And that just seemed wrong. That wasn't the the sort of narrative that they were familiar with. So, you know, I think the more people learn about this, the more trauma survivors understand. I think it does open the door. It provides some pathways. It provides, you know, some information on the kinds of things that, that can help people to achieve growth. So this sort of triggered the whole positive psychology movement. Is that a fair statement? Well, I think positive psychology is different than post-traumatic growth. I think what it did what, that was very helpful was changed, I think, some of the predominant thinking in psychology about post-traumatic growth so, or, or about positive change. So, you know, psychology has a very long history of trying to, you know, find out what is wrong with people psychologically and help them get better. You know, that is hugely important and I think a great service. And uh, lots and lots of people I interviewed, you know, went to therapists. They found psychological help to be crucial in kind of dealing with their trauma. But for a very long time, that's where psychology stopped. And the idea was to just kind of get you functional, get you doing better, get you back to normal, whatever that is. And, and then you were done. And, you know, positive psychology started looking at this whole idea of positive change. How can we take people that are okay and help them achieve more and, and really kind of, um, you know, become a better version of who they are and get to someplace that they are, you know, kind of maybe interested in heading as opposed to kind of helping them deal with some deficit or malady or, or dysfunction. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And 
I think post-traumatic growth really benefited from that shift in thinking about what psychology could do. You know, I mean, it still is a tough field. You know, there's not tons of money for these studies. Um, you know, I know that the two guys who kind of came up with the whole idea of post-traumatic growth still, you know, they often piggyback their studies on other people's studies because they, they can't get the funding, you know, which is crazy. They, they are really kind of the, you know, the, the grandfathers of this field and it's still hard for them to find funding to do their own research. But I think it kind of opened doors in journals, in universities, in kind of academia, in this world of psychology to, to kind of say it's okay. It's for us to, to actually spend some time looking at positive change, not just at, you know, negativity and problems and, and all of that. So the, positive psychology movement. And there are a lot of people who have backgrounds in positive psychology that do research in post-traumatic growth. And I think it has been very helpful, but separate. You said people reported positive change in five areas. They had a renewed appreciation for life. They found new possibilities for themselves. They felt more personal strength. Their relationships improved and they felt spiritually more satisfied. When I saw your list of these five areas of change, it reminded me of Abraham Maslow's sure. uh, hierarchy of needs. Do you see a correlation between what happens in post-traumatic growth, moving people up the Maslow scale of hierarchy of needs? Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, many of the psychologists I spoke to who are involved in post-traumatic growth research or involved as clinicians, you know, have a, a humanistic background. They're, you know, very much aware of Maslow and the folks that worked with him and, and in that area of inquiry. I spoke to um, this really remarkable woman who had been paralyzed in a car accident when she was just 16, went on to study at Stanford and then to Harvard, and she's now a psychologist, and she's done some research on post-traumatic growth. From her perspective, she actually sees her own accident and, and the struggles she's been through as, you know, really life-changing and something that she wouldn't give up. You know, she's like, it, it is hard. It's a struggle. Mobility is, is tough. But for her, the way she sees the world now, the opportunities that she's had, the way that she lives her life is so much different and different in a way it couldn't have been otherwise that she said if she could go back, she, she wouldn't change a thing. And for her, you know, she has an interesting way of describing it. She says that basically in life, we're kind of all on a trajectory towards growth. And when something horrible like this happens, you're kind of given an opportunity to rise up a few levels. It's sort of like getting on the escalator of personal growth <laughs> as opposed to taking the stairs like the rest of us. So, you know, I thought that was a very interesting way of, of looking at it. And, you know, I think she would um, certainly as one of the, the people looking into this would would definitely uh, point to the humanistic psychologist and say, you know, those guys were, were on the right track. And, you know, there's a fellow, Stephen Joseph in the UK, who has been looking at this almost as long as anybody, certainly since like the mid 80s or so. And, you know, he really comes firmly from that tradition and really sees his work in post-traumatic growth as a way of kind of updating what Maslow and those other psychologists were doing using kind of the modern terminology of growth and trauma and change and really sticks very strictly, I think, to um, to what they were talking about and does see post-traumatic growth as kind of part of that life growth trajectory. What's the difference between this notion of post-traumatic growth and making lemonade out of lemons? In other mm. words, this, you know, people will say, oh, this is, I had a heart attack. This is the best thing that ever happened to me. Does that mean we should all just go eat bacon until we almost die? <laughs> or simply, look, this happened to me and I have a personality that allows me to move through it and to find meaning in it or to make meaning out of it. It's a good question. I, I would say that most of these people look and it, you know, it depends certainly on the kind of trauma that someone has been through. But, you know, I think a lot of people will say this thing happened. And it was terrible. And it was physically painful. It was psychologically painful. It was very hard. And it 
forced me into a place where I kind of had no choice but to change. So sometimes it's physical. You know, there's a fellow, um, Shane Mullins, that I spoke to in Ireland who was in a car accident when he was, you know, a sort of late teenager, 18 or 19, and had a traumatic brain injury and, you know, got out of the hospital and, you know, had issues with coordination and balance and, you know, movement. He was sort of partially paralyzed for a little while and tried to just go back to his regular life and go to the pub and get drunk. And, you know, he found that after one beer, he just was falling on his face and, you know, just it was a mess and realized pretty quickly there were real physical limitations on him that he couldn't go back to his old life. He couldn't. He had been a builder and worked on his parents' farm and he couldn't be around farm equipment because, you know, if you kind of lose your balance at the wrong time, you can lose a limb. (laughs) So, you know, that wasn't an option. And he had to really just say, okay, you know, he was forced by the physical limitations to rethink what he wanted to do. And he wound up, you know, he had dropped out of high school. He went back to college. He, you know, sobered up and learned a lot about brain injury and PTSD and, and started seeing a therapist and, and put together kind of a presentation that he does about what he's been through and the kind of systems that he developed to help himself kind of reinvent himself. And now he travels around, he does presentations, he's been on TV, he's been, you know, interviewed by the BBC for radio documentary. I mean, really kind of remarkable and inspirational guy who just, he's a completely different person and he still has struggles and problems. But, you know, I think he would say that he, he was forced to do something different and that kind of worked as a catalyst. It caused mm-hmm. him to rethink things, to, to really spend some time thinking about what is it that I want to do? What's, what is meaningful? What so, is valuable? Right. So, so he's a perfect example of what you called earlier, I think, the existential approach. This is what happened to me. I'm going to do the best I can with it. And in his case, it turned out amazingly well. In the interviews you did, did people say, well, this was the grace of God. This was, you know, God did this because this is part of God's plan for my life. So God gave me this trauma so that I could realize these other things. Did you find anyone taking the religious approach? Yeah, sure. And religion can be very important. You know, it's, it's, I did a chapter on, um, on religion and, and post-traumatic growth. And there are several studies that look at the question of religion psychology, as, as I learned, and, you know, not being a psychologist and haven't really, you know, delved into psychology probably since I took a psych course in college. Um, you know, psychology is not great on religion. You know, there's a guy um, who I interviewed in the book, a psychologist who has spent his career looking at psychology and religion and basically said most psychologists aren't religious, so they don't spend any time looking at the questions of religion and psychology. But what they found actually is that people who are religious often have been shown to report more post-traumatic growth or may grow more often or may, excuse me, may be more likely to grow than people who are not religious. Religion is one of those things that can be correlated with growth. And, you know, studies that look at religious people, at least one has found people that are more religious or who attended church more often, I guess was the metric, uh, reported more growth than those who attended less often, even among religious people. And there's a whole theory of looking at religious coping. And I think and it, it kind of mirrors, I think, what, what non-religious people go through as well, but the the psychologist who developed this idea of negative religious coping, which is, I think, what most people would go through after a traumatic experience to say, you know, why has God done this to me, right? This horrible thing has happened. I'm a religious person. I have lived my life the way I'm supposed to. I followed the rules. And all of a sudden, you know, in the example of the woman I wrote about in that chapter, her son was murdered by a stray bullet from a gunfight. You know, I mean, it had nothing to do with him. He was actually going to a teens against gun violence rally. Um, or Christmas party when he was shot and killed. You know, she was just destroyed. And I think for a long time, really struggled with her faith because she had always been taught as a child that if you go to church and you pray and you do all the right things that, you know, God will look out for you, that you will have a good life. And she just felt utterly betrayed. And it took, I think, years of discussions with her priest and reading books and, and really doing some hard thinking for her to 
try to find a way to honor her son. And she founded, it's called the Louis D. Brown Peace Institute in Boston. And they developed a curriculum around him that they do and that they teach in the public schools. And, you know, she works with other parents who have lost children to violence in the city and does, you know, remarkable, remarkable work and found a way to kind of reorient her life in a way that honors her son. And that, you know, that would be considered positive religious coping that you kind of reorient your thinking about your faith and what's occurred and how to incorporate the trauma into your faith. And maybe your faith changes a little bit and maybe it becomes different or a little deeper or mutates in a way you may not have expected. But, you know, I think people who are religious, you know, they face the same kind of questions and struggles everybody else does. They maybe have a little bit of a different framework for thinking about it. Both examples you gave us really speak to the genius of the human being to rise above tragedy and trauma like this. My guest today was Jim Rendon. His book, Upside, The New Science of Post-Traumatic Growth, will be in stores in August. Thank you so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Today's interview was sponsored by Shivananda Ashram Yoga Retreat Bahamas, where yoga is more than a class, it's a way of life. With a mission to promote peace in the world, the good people at Shivananda Ashram invite you to immerse in a yogic lifestyle. Get started at shivanandabahamas.org. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats, which will work on any tablet or smartphone, and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Corinne Johnston, and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.